I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Over time, over five to 10 years, 15 years, having some awareness of how well we are doing at climate mitigation will matter if we want to start after after it becomes an issue, good luck to us. I mean, we could start now, right? You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm William Lieben, a researcher in the policy engagement team here at the National Security College. Today's podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay respects to their elders past and present. Today I'm joined by Dr. James Mortensen and Isabel Bond. Dr. James Mortensen is a lecturer at the National Security College with research interests including environmental security and climate change. And Isabel Bond has a bachelor's degree in marine and Antarctic governance and is a research assistant assistant here at the NSC. Welcome, James and Isabel. Thanks. Thanks, Will. So we're here to discuss polar geopolitics, as well as a recent policy options paper that you both co-authored, published by the NSC, entitled Cold Logic, Getting Intelligent About Antarctica. And I should note that, of course, any views expressed today are in a personal capacity only and don't represent those of any Australian government organisation. So with that housekeeping aside, Perhaps we might start with the broad context for the research you've conducted in this area, which strikes me as twofold, that being climate change and Australia's stake in the Antarctic treaty system. Isabel, perhaps you might set the scene for listeners who might not be familiar with the details of Antarctic governance and Australia's role in the system. Yeah, so very briefly, um, yeah, the governance system in Antarctica is primarily governed by the Antarctic Treaty, which was um, signed in 1961, and it demilitarizes um, the, you know, the continent. And it's a system built on peace and science. Um, the Antarctic Treaty. There's also um, a system, so it's not just the a treaty itself, but there's subsequent international agreements which seek to, for example, protect the environment and prohibit mining and manage the marine living resources down there. Um, so, and Australia claims 42% of the continent. And so there's various, um, claims to Antarctica. These claims overlap and they're not kind of set in stone. The sovereignty is frozen. There's a sovereignty freezing mechanism under the Antarctic treaty system. Um, and yes, um, any, any states can conduct science down there as long as they can, um, access to the continent. So there's a lot of, um, different states involved down in Antarctica. Nice. So perhaps, James, if you could expand a little and talk to Australia's strategic interests in Antarctica, because I think it's a, a geography that a lot of listeners will be familiar with thinking about in perhaps niche terms and not perhaps within the frame of reference of Australian strategic policy. Well, I mean, 
I think the big issue and really what our paper is trying to speak to is that there's sort of two answers to that question and and there may be, uh, there needs to be an alternative. So, I mean, one answer to the question of our, our wider strategic interest in, in Antarctica is, of course, uh, upholding the uh, the win-win of cooperation, scientific cooperation, hand-holding and, and general good times down uh, down in Antarctica, um, uh, building building the world we want to see on the international stage. Um, on the flip side, and certainly the thing that I think is getting a lot more traction in national security circles or general strategic circles uh, for the last decade or so is uh, – the same thing, but from the from a negative perspective, hedging hedging geopolitical competition. So, especially with um, you know uh, that country that shall not be named, uh, the degree to which we might uh, see exploitation of resources, whether that's maritime resources, uh, fish stocks, uh, oil, uh, or you know moving to mineral mineral wealth, etc. Um, the degree to which uh, other states might seek to militarize Antarctica, disrespect the treaty system, and generally take advantage of um, of that sort of cooperation. There are other maybe more niche uh, uh, issues. Um, probably monitoring is the biggest one that comes to mind. So having uh, geo, geo uh, you know, satellite or, or, or comms monitoring um, down on the pole is good, especially if, say, you're a northern hemisphere power that doesn't necessarily have access to that territory. Um, and lastly, I suppose, uh, keeping spheres of influence open um, given the air of cooperation, uh, you know, Antarctic research is niche but very important and not at all cheap. So, you know, having some, having a having a foothold down there is, is obviously could be of of use and create important inroads. Th- those are the sorts of strategic considerations that I think most people have had and, and largely gets the sort of conversation going or has got the conversation going. Um, um, Though the degree to which those two things or those two aspects should be all we talk about, I mean, that's that's sort of the question that we've raised in the paper. I think we'll come back to the geopolitics um, of, of the current moment in Antarctica and how these issues are intertwined. But I think first it might be useful to, to pull a little further on the thread about climate science in Antarctica and the role that Antarctic research plays from an Australian point of view and also as part of the global science enterprise on climate change. For instance, there was a line that stuck out to me um, in the paper um, that perhaps might surprise some readers as well, where you note that more research is actually required to still improve climate model projections. Of course, we've just seen the release of the IPCC's sixth synthesis report. Um, We know that uh, climate science has developed a more and more mature and high-fidelity understanding of how the Earth system is changing. Uh, how or what, what role, I should say, does, Antarctic, does Antarctica play uh, in developing that science and why is it particularly important? Um, well, to understand how important climate science is, one has to understand, um, well, for, sorry, Antarctica for climate science, one has to understand Antarctica's role on the climate um, system in general. And so Antarctica is a pivotal regulator of the Earth's global climate system. And this is for numerous reasons. For example, it regulates incoming solar radiation. It also initiates deep ocean currents, which distribute heat around the globe. And it's an important carbon sink um, as a result of bio, biophysical processes. Um, and so although a lot of these processes are relatively well understood, there are, are lots which, there are many which aren't. For example, um, sea ice and ice sh- um, sheet dynamics. 
And these are interconnected and interdependent with the processes just just, just mentioned. Um, and so the uncertainty surrounding those is a major impediment to the betterment of global climate models, considering that Antarctica can be likened to the Earth's global climate systems engine on, you know, on Earth. Um, so the fact that we don't know um, that there are still uncertainties within this, what we know about this engine means that that um, our understanding um, of global climate models isn't as complete or as accurate as or as precise as it could be. And um, this has been kind of highlighted again to us, considering, you know, uh, in March 2022, um, two ice shelves the size of Sydney broke off. And, and importantly, this um, breaking off of ice shelves was unexpected and unpredicted. So, um, and is also similar to a... Um, what we saw previously this century in, in the Larsen B ice shelf breaking off Antarctica as well. So that, that was also an unexpected um, ice sheet collapse. We know that what happens in Antarctica has a huge impact on what happens everywhere else in the world. We just don't necessarily know how much and when it will manifest and that sort of thing. And given the uh, rising importance of, you know, especially severe weather events in Australia, like an, an extra week, an extra week of warning, Imagine an extra week of warning on the last, you know, flood, bushfire, whatever. Um, like it's 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 a huge value proposition from from a human cost and a financial cost. So, the more we can understand it, the better. Yeah, I think it's a useful point to draw out, among other things, because perhaps the the persistent patter of news, uh, be it day to day or scientific reporting, pulled into to mainstream news reporting, might give the impression that. We understand everything as well as we need to, and that uh, the the status quo is adequately developed, and that's obviously not the case. We, you know, we're in a position where we can absolutely make decisions and implement policy and so on, um, but the frontier is obviously continuously developing, uh, as you both well appreciate, and people who are listening and keyed into this science or or this policy area will, will know as well. And then another uh, example, and only the last week or so, um, that I imagine both of you would have seen. Uh, reporting in Nature Climate Change uh, on uh, melting of Antarctic ice uh, and its role in disrupting effectively global ocean circulation um, as a, a key driver in turn of, of the Earth system as a whole. Um, so this stuff is just really critical and our understanding is developing all the time. Uh, you know what I mean? So the, there's that immediate stuff. There's also just like basic longitudinal uh, studies that, are still developing. So in the, uh, I think the Morrison government's big announcement, eight, the 880, X, 880-something million dollar uh, investment in, in Antarctic uh, stuff, uh, one of the major, you know, crown jewels in that announcement was uh, getting an ice core. So driving, and, and it's, it's not easy to say get an ice core, but you've got to drive what, 1,300 kilometres in minus 40. And a million year ice core. Yeah, yeah, to get an ice core that goes back a million years, right? Now, that's all cool and sexy and we can we can look at that and say, oh, well, you know, that's a good win. But the fact is, like, we need that ice core because we only have, I think there's only one other million million year ice core that, like, the Brit- I think the British Antarctic uh, guys pulled up. And, you know, one's, one's a great start, but, you know, you need to, to compare it. So even on this really broad longitudinal stuff, like what has the climate looked out, looked like for the last hundred, uh, last million years? I mean, the, the, the cost is, is, is large and we are still doing it, right? Like it's, it's still evolving rather than sort of locked in and we can take it for granted.
We'll be right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. So so perhaps this might be a useful juncture for us to tack back towards the more overt geopolitics side of the conversation. Um, and while you obviously didn't plan to to write and release the policy paper at this point in time, you know, it, it's also been fortuitous, uh, the news cycle over the last week or so in terms of geopolitical developments. So, for instance, Centre for Strategic and Independent Studies out of the US this, pub- this week uh, published a, a report picking apart developments in China's construction of its fifth research station um, down in Antarctica. Uh, and, of course, to be absolutely clear, this, this is a, a routine development. This is this is not new news. Um, as, as we've opened with, um, the Antarctic Treaty System has a large number of claimants and scientific stakeholders down on Antarctica. Um, so, so we need to discuss this in context. But, but for understandable reasons, this is getting quite a bit of... Uh, attention in the more mainstream media, shall we say. Um, How do you see the significance of those kind of developments within both Antarctica and within Australia's broader strategic concerns? The the difficulty, I think, is that it's the nature of Antarctica itself, not having been, but trying to get my head around like I said, trying to get this ice core, right? Like like traveling 1,300 kilometers is hard work, whether it's, you know, it's between Sydney and Brisbane or, or Casey Station in the South Pole. That's fine. Um, but it's obviously much harder work down there, right? Like like infinitely harder work. And we're talking like $160 million maybe might get us there one way, you know? I don't know. Don't quote me on the figure. But it's, it's, it's obviously millions of dollars is a lot of work. Um, and so when we're talking about, say, uh, a, a nation building a base, in Antarctica, you know, one might – it would be understandable to forget the fact that in order to actually check what's going on down there, like you're waiting till summer, you're chartering a, a cold-weather, you know, aircraft that's capable of making the flight, you're putting together the team, you're turning up, you've got a, like half a day to walk around and say hi um, – and you know maybe we do this. We our, our routine, our inspection uh, schedule, I think, is getting increased as part of again as part of the investment down there. Um, yeah, it's not the sort of thing that you can. There's a lot of guesswork involved, is what I suppose what I'm saying. If we know that they're building the base, great. What does it actually look like? What's 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 actually going on? Well, you're going to at least spend eleven months of the year wondering. Um, and uh, 
I don't know, to get it maybe glib when it comes to security policy and security concerns. I think, you know, wondering is, is the best place to start and the worst place to finish. Um, so uh, that tempers a lot of my sort of expectations, I suppose, on that sort of stuff. Uh, the question, I suppose, of well, should we should we be should we be concerned? Um, you know, evidently, um, the 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 wider political climate, no pun intended, is certainly such that obviously having it, casting an eye and having some concern is is fine. Ramifications for Antarctica, though, I think, in a way, it's much more responsible to wait and see. It's much more responsible to wait until we can get on the plane and have a look and have a walk around and shake hands. Um, you know, and that, that I think is crucial to the sort of treaty system success overall. I, I don't know if you would yeah. say the same. Yeah, yeah collaboration and, yeah, working together. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if that makes sense, you know, like as in yeah, we want to, we want to, us here or C- CSIS, we want to, yeah, sure, it's our job to worry, right? But at the same time, that worry should only go as far as, well, someone's actually going to go on the plane and they're going to, they're actually going to have a look and, and maintaining that cooperation and camaraderie is absolutely crucial to the treaty. Yeah. So, so two things that really stick out at me in your comments just then that might be worth highlighting for people. Um, the, the first is, yeah, the sheer, the sheer difficulty of doing anything in this environment. Some people will be aware of, um, the fact that Australia had plans to establish effectively in a, a year round, um, airfield capability, uh, near one of its research stations. Uh, the then government abandoned those plans in late 2021 uh, for, I think, a complicated set of reasons. I imagine many of which are not necessarily public, but among them, um, the extraordinary cost of that endeavour to establish something that is actually operable year round in such a hostile environment. Um, so, so to accomplish anything, let alone anything at, at scale, is incredibly difficult. Uh, and, and the second is how we know things about what other countries are doing in Antarctica uh, and what people in the most, for the most part wouldn't be aware of, I'm sure, is that it's actually through inspection. So even in the CSIS work, for instance, it does use uh, uh, imagery analysis to a certain extent, but largely it draws on work um, or information gathered um, through compliance inspections that are conducted under the Antarctic Treaty System by all the partner countries involved, so both the United States and Australia in 2020 conducted extensive inspection tours of other parties' research stations. Uh, this is, yes, to verify um, the demilitarised status of those facilities, um, but also very much to ensure the more mundane but critically important things like environmental compliance down to the minutiae of do you have spill kits next to your generators? Are you protecting the environment? Are you preserving Antarctica for, for those values as well? Um, and that really speaks to and underlines, I think, how this system functions. And at, at this point in time, despite, as you say, arguably necessary worry and attention onto the political possibilities in this space, that the system is cooperative and it's built on uh, a certain degree of openness and cooperation partly also because of the sheer hostility of the environment. Yeah. Yeah, I think like it's, uh, you know, that we want to worry, absolutely. But ultimately that worry cannot and should not extend further than what the inspection teams, especially with a, with now that we've, we've, we're instituting, as far as I'm aware, a, a raised inspection re- uh, schedule, 
like they they need to they need to be they need to be able to breathe easy and 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 tell the you know, tell the story that they see, and we need to take that. I think, um, and especially as you said, yeah, routine, right? Like, like you spill kits next to your generators. What do you do with your rubbish? What do you do with your muesli bar wrapper? Like, this is the sort of minutiae that they need to do, um, and in such a harsh environment, you know, like I think a lot of people would just be hard pressed getting um, two things done. The other thing that I want to say, uh, based on yeah, what what you've put forward, will like um, with the with the I think it was off Casey base the 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 decision to to not go ahead of the, with the airfield. It's drawn some criticism. It's drawn some praise uh, for a variety of different reasons. And one of the one of the threads that goes through that uh, that decision, as well as other decisions that have been made recently, is uh, the notion of dual use and demilitarization. Um, you know, an all weather airfield might make it easier to do inspections. It would also make it easier to host um, military aircraft and 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 that sort of thing. There have been other decisions that Australia's made recently with their Antarctic um, budget, like uh, the drones, right, so an increased drone fleet and that sort of stuff, which, again, in theory, will help inspections but also could be seen as um, as that sort of stuff. It, it seems like a, a bit of a wicked game ultimately that, that we can't necessarily get away from. But in my mind, that doubles down on the fact that we need to trust the inspections more than we trust our worries, I suppose. So a question for you both now. Obviously, without divulging any confidences, I imagine you spoke to a variety of counterparts, both in the research community and in government, in the course of doing this work. Uh, might you offer some comment on how counterparts in government or different colleagues understand the problem, where they share how you framed the problem and what their thinking is in terms of the policy avenues forward? Well, I think um, a lot of the focus in government at the moment seems to be on the more tactical kind of short-term focus of climate science and climate change in particular rather than that strategic kind of longer-term, um, you know, that longer-term focus which is more of the um, emphasis of our papers, like kind of looking broader um, and looking at strategic kind of ramifications of this kind of thing. But um, what do you think, James? Uh, um, I think that... There's a there's a there's a, there's a particular reason that if you do read the paper, I strongly suggest you read the paper. Uh, feel free to send us any comments. Um, that there's a reason that the paper is framed for what it means for Australia domestically, rather than what it means internationally. There are international ramifications um, for taking a more, I mean, in our view, responsible, um, no, not slinging any mud, but a, a more responsible view of of what the strategic value of Antarctica is pitching that domestically because, you know, the language of weather, right, weather with an E-A, uh, the language of weather is uh, in ascendancy in Australia, in, in political circles, in policy circles, as it probably is long overdue. So, you know, in, in that sense, I think it's that maybe is an answer to your question. It gives you a feel for, I suppose, the traction involved in saying, well, look, I know, you know, you might see that Antarctica is the purview of, well, the guys that like Antarctica and the dual use stuff and sure, 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 right? But if you want um, our climate capabilities, our ability to, to, to see ahead or project forward or to understand more robustly what effects and detriments and, and thing, what's coming over the horizon climate-wise, if that is crucial to us, and which it is from a domestic point of view, um, then, you know, the, the the southern continent's got a lot more value to you than 
warm and fuzzy feelings or dual use technology. Yeah. So, and that seems to be, I mean, it seems to have hit a nerve in a good way, I hope. It, it, it might be worth pointing out for people as well just how small an area of government and responsibility in, in sheer human terms this is when we're talking about actually doing things in Antarctica and even the scientific endeavour. That, uh, For understandable reasons, this is an area of our machinery of government that most people won't be intimately familiar with, but the Antarctic, the Australian Antarctic Division, I should say, for our listeners is part of DQ, what is now the Department of Climate Change, the Environment, Energy and Water. <laughs> I think I'm getting that right. One of our favourite acronyms. Um, I'm sure we'll get corrections if I was wrong. Um but this is in the scale of government and certainly in terms of broader foreign policy conversations, a very small part of government, which has a focus on enabling scientific endeavour for good reason. Um, so we're talking about quite a small number of genuine experts in the field, let alone people with field experience down in the environment um, alongside a, a community of researchers who understand the scientific problems, hmm. um, which I think is just useful to point out because it, it kind of is important to colour how we think about actually getting anything done in this environment and who understands the problem. It's it's quite different to most of the conversations we have, certainly in National Security College, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I mean, yeah, you're feeling on this as well, but like I, it it seemed to me, I want to say fair, it seemed, seems to us, but I'd love verbal confirmation from you, <laughs> I want to speak for you, um, that, you know, as a, up until this point, and one of the main uh, sort of drivers for us to write this paper was that that small that's that's that small group of people, the AAD, uh, the people in the Australian Antarctic Program, they know that it's important. It's their life. That's what they do. Uh, and then from other areas, we interact with Antarctica along those sort of geopolitical lines that we first started talking about. Right? As in, we oh, we want to we want to make sure that we're all cooperating. We want to make sure that no one comes in and spoils the party and and, and takes advantage of the minerals or, or whatever else. You know, Antarctica is basically a, a source of concern, right? Rather than this is a place where if we invest, we will see dividends for our wider security, not simply hedging people in Antarctica, but as in maintaining the Australian, you know, polity way of life in a positive sense. Um, you know, I hope, I think we hope that um, that changing the conversation in this way will mean that that small arm of government, as you said, yeah, and I think it's like 400 people or something, the AOD is about 400, 400 strong, that um, if it stays 400 strong, they at least get a lot more support and a lot more help to do uh, work that ultimately, whether we realise it or not, will be critical to Australia and indeed the rest of the world moving forward. I think this brings us pretty squarely and usefully onto, I guess, the meat of the paper, um, which is, to, to put it in plain language, or what do we do about it? What are the next steps? So perhaps, Isabel, if you could speak to the recommendations and mm -hmm. give, give us a summary of what you think the the most valuable steps for the Australian government to take are in this area at the moment. So before we kind of get into the recommendations, we might need to contextualise a little bit more about what we're talking about in the paper when we're referring to climate intelligence. And this is kind of takes two forms. We're talking about intelligence for Antarctica, in which case we're talking about um, how climate changes in Antarctica are likely to affect Australia's Antarctic interests, so how climate science can be used to um, help us kind of gain an understanding and more foresight in relation to that, and also in relation to intelligence from Antarctica, so how um, the science collected down there will um, potentially be able to help security agencies preempt the ramifications of climate changes on Australia and in our broader 
region and neighbourhood. So a few examples of this include, you know, obviously for disaster preparation and humanitarian assistance, strategic planning, and um, also um, it has diplomatic benefits as well. So following on from this, our first recommendation is that a climate intelligence working group be established with uh, different members from the intelligence community community in the scientific community, um, including those such as the Bureau of Meteorology, CSIRO, the Australian Antarctic Division, the Office of National Intelligence, um, the Defence Intelligence Organisation and, and various others, and that this intelligence working group report its findings to the National Security Committee of Cabinet or the Secretary's Committee of National Security and um, recommend priority areas of scientific study. So our sec- that goes to our second recommendation, which is that these priority areas um, should be supported by increased funding and capability and that the amount and delivery of this would fall upon the member agencies and that this funding could be drawn from existing departmental allocations. I mean, I think in the paper we put it in very cold, hard terms, right? Australia spends about $38 billion a year in natural disaster mitigation. That's That's... A big number. And projections suggest that that will start to rival, say, things like the defence budget in a matter of a decade. So the more that we can acknowledge, plan for, prepare and mitigate natural disasters, uh, you know, when we're talking about an Antarctic budget that's 880 million over 20 years, 10 years, 20 years, like it's it's a pittance. Yeah, thanks. it occurs to me as well that for some people the idea that you know, climate science is intelligence might sound provocative. I think it's worth also pointing out that in a way there has already been de facto acknowledgement of, of that equivalence. Uh, the new Labor government, when it came into office, one of its first sort of acts in the national security space was to order the Office of National Intelligence to conduct a, a climate change and security risk assessment um, which was done, that wasn't focused on Antarctica, but merely in ordering that work and O&I carrying it out, clearly there is an understanding from the people who understand the threats and the risks and how we need to understand our regional environment that whether or not we're choosing to use the direct language of equivalence between climate science and intelligence, the, the equivalence is there. Um, so the, the idea that this is provocative or entirely novel I don't think is something that either of you would claim um, but anybody who would have that reaction, I think that they would be misplaced in having that reaction. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, there's also uh, there's a, there's a matter of just being ahead of the curve. Like, like I think the uh, the climate, no pun intended, globally, geopolitically, is changing. Adherence or, or hopeful adherence to 1.5 degrees warming is matter will matter. Emissions will matter. The really the and and over time, over five to ten years. 15 years, having some awareness of how well we are doing at climate mitigation will matter if we want to start after <laughs> after it becomes an issue. Good luck to us. I mean, we could start now, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that a recent report um, released by the UN has actually said that there's no realistic way in which we can keep um, to, to at 1.5 degrees. So we're looking at um, above that just yeah. yeah, like, like every, everything's going to matter. Like every yeah. little detail will matter. And, you know, Australia is like claiming 42% of the continent. Mm-hmm. We like to think of ourselves as an Antarctic leader. Um, actually, evidence suggests that that is actually the case. Well, let's do it yeah. because this information 
uh, on multiple levels, whether it's climate mitigation and making sure that we are doing the most that we can, um, which I believe will be very important and pertinent information to many people around the world moving forward, or whether it's uh, if we can sort of crack the code. And we aren't, we should be clear, I, I don't think we are suggesting at all that more money equals more science. Like we, like that's not how science works, but certainly more money helps the chance of more science. Uh, and if we can, you know, make some good headway to really understand, you know, the big, the ENSO, the big, you know, uh, El Nino Southern Oscillation, all of these sorts of things, the climate drivers that affect countries on a yearly basis, you know, that is valuable information to us. It's valuable information to, I don't know, Bangladesh, name a country, right? Um, this stuff has a value and it will have a more powerful value every year that passes from here. Getting on now is better than getting on when it's, you know, too late, too late. Well, it's already too late. Don't tell the kids. So so I think that leads us quite nicely to my last question, um, which pulls on another thread within your paper, which is this distinction you draw between, uh, I think the language you use is a positive vision of security within the Antarctic Treaty System um, and perhaps a more traditional or familiar approach in other areas of our foreign policy or defence policy, which might simply be about minimising conflict risks. Um, so if you could speak a little to that distinction and I guess its implications for kind of the, the vision implicit in the paper. So, yeah, what we talk about in the paper is that there's these positive security benefits that can be realised through um, increasing uh, climate science and, and understanding Antarctica more and that these these security benefits are real and that, you know, hedging it against other kind of potential conflict um, is also important, but that this is um, an area that could be increased and hasn't been recognised as as much as for its security benefit as um, as it could be. So, so we're really talking about opportunities rather than just risks to use that alternate language, I suppose, James. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd say absolutely. Yeah. We, we 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 want to like Antarctica. I think we 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 have we've backed ourselves into a little bit of a corner. We say, well, what if someone took advantage of it? We need to make sure that no one else takes advantage of it, right? And there's cooperation down there with science, and that's nice. But it's 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 scientific. It's for it's scientists for science. It's science for scientists, and that's a positive outcome for the scientists. And we just need to make sure that nobody you know rips the, the guts out of the place or puts a bomber down there or something, right? As opposed to saying, well, you know, actually the science that goes on down there, it helps the Australian security environment immensely. It helps us mitigate or could hopefully help us, you know, mitigate the worst of, of uh, or prepare for climate for climate impacts, maintain as much as we possibly can monitoring of, you know, emissions and, and, and our, our targets for making sure the world doesn't catch on fire in 100 years. These are positive security realisations um, and concentrating on those, I think, is, you know. I think that's a nice mildly optimistic note to end what is often a pretty bleak topic. Thank you both for your time today. Thanks very much. Thank you.